1: Hey, welcome to the 157th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Amanda O'Connor and Pablo Gallo. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Edlo. And today we are going back to the basics with an old Matt and Oren Q&A episode. We have a bunch of questions and we are just going to tackle them one at a time. It's funny, I feel like when we first started doing the Q&A episodes, I would estimate maybe like three minutes per question, but now it's more like, it's like 25 minutes. Yeah, it's like
2: 45 minutes per question.
1: Yeah, three questions is like an episode.
2: It's a lot of like, ah, you know, let me think about that. That's a good one. But we've got a treasure trove of great questions. We let them pile up, so apologies, but we're going to get through as many as we can this episode. Before we start answering those questions, Oren,
1: what have you been working on lately? I've been thinking a lot today because I'm like pulled in all these different directions about like freelance life and how it's not that being a director is like especially stressful, but it's being a freelancer and being like hired by 10 different people at the same time and they all expect you to prioritize them. And the first priority is something that's been on my mind a lot lately. And I have friends that don't work in film. Like I have a friend that's a police officer and he called me today and he's like, what's going on? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm kind of a, having a stressful day and he's like why why And i was trying to explain to him not as a filmmaker right but right. just as like a human being what it why it's stressful because it's like having 10 different bosses that don't know about each other
2: <laughs> which is a funny thing to complain to a police officer about <laughs> yeah he's
1: got a very clear chain of command
2: but I'm I'm saying like you're like I'm stressed out because I have to write oh. <laughs> a lot of jokes for these commercials, and he's like, well, I'm putting my life on the line every single day.
1: Yes, yes. In terms of like um, immediate stress or stakes, I mean his his sure. job is much, <laughs> is, yeah, yeah, it's much more dangerous. Yeah. His his, his is
2: life or death, and yours is like I hope I m- get to make this Geico commercial.
1: So I don't know. I, it's just kind of been something, and I, and I do think it reminds me of like part of the reason like feature films and tv are so alluring like obviously mm-hmm. there's some prestige there but it's also you get to put all of your brain into one place you know yeah you get to be obsessed yeah to the point where like you forget to pay bills
2: and like <laughs> do like regular life stuff that's why you know personal assistants are important is because like you literally don't have time to even live your life in a regular way
1: Right. But you're also allowed to say, oh, sorry, I can't make it to your birthday party. I've got the movie. Or sorry, yeah, exactly. I can't do that. I've got the movie. Or please do this. I'm working on my movie or my deadline. Like, But when you have 20 things, you can't say, oh, I have that one job. So, And when you're working on spec or when you're like ideating, you know, coming up with like your short film that you want to shoot or mm-hmm. your feature or whatever, that thing is also very hard to tell people that you can't do their thing because... Sorry, I have, I have de- I'm de- I've decided to spend 3 hours a day coming up with ideas, you know. Yeah,
2: brainstorming is the hardest because it's unstructured time or rather it's it looks really dumb. You know, I remember thinking of Bill Watterson, the guy who used to draw Dave Made a Maze. Uh, <laughs> Dave Made a Maze. Uh no, Calvin and Hobbes Bill Watterson. Oh, okay. And how, you know, he would talk about how work sometimes was him just like sitting at his drafting table staring out the window. Sometimes it would be <coughs> weeks before you'd have a good idea for a strip
1: yeah i mean it's so different because now i don't think anybody sits at their drafting table and stares at the window i think they sit at their drafting table and like scroll through instagram read emails read the news
2: i've really struggled a lot with phone addiction and haven't made big strides in terms in terms of like cutting it out you know like i use freedom as best i can and i'll like put my phone in my other room and i will uh, work longhand sometimes to avoid it, but I'm still, it's yeah. hard to go 45 minutes straight without looking at your phone.
1: Do you know that you, there's therapists that specialize in getting, I mean, it's totally not surprising, but I've read an article about a guy that basically was trying to cope with his phone addiction and he went to like a specialist and it sounded really hard. I mean, the first thing is they tell you to get like one of those old phones, you know, that's yeah, like not a smartphone. Yeah, like a little Nokia. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I would love a smartphone that just didn't have Facebook or Twitter or Instagram on it. Right, all the tools you need. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I want I want a GPS. I want to be able to email. I want to be able to text. I want to be able to take photos. Right. Those are the things that make my life better.
1: Yeah, ironically, the camera is actually a good thing. I feel like it's encouraging us to be creative or interested or document things. Anyway, so yeah, freelancing, it's just part of the fun of being a director. I'm just curious, like, can you be like 65 years old and like still be like, yeah, sorry, I'm not writing three treatments and I'm doing like, do you think at some point you're like, ah, I'm just, I'm just over it. I'm just over like fighting for like 10 different jobs at the same time.
2: I mean, I think at a certain point you have to start your own company or get a job job or, you know, be Ridley Scott.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the Ridley Scott. That's the that version. Jordan, you know, who's been on our podcast, has his own podcast. He does that. You know, he gets his gigs that he directs, and he represents other directors that do their things. But, yeah, he probably struggles with the same things. I'm like, uh, sorry, I know I said I was going to help you with your short film, but I just got uh, two treatments to write, so I'm out. Yeah, you and I have been trying to make a spec commercial for like a year, <laughs> and we keep getting pulled away. Yeah, we're going to, though. One of these days when no one wants to hire us for anything, we'll go back to making our own things. Uh, all right. Here we go. Let's hop into our
2: question.
1: Okay. First question is from Unnamed from Sioux Falls, Iowa. Let's play the voicemail.
0: Hey, guys. I am a 21-year-old filmmaker from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is right next to Sioux City, Iowa which I know Oren says is the most random place in the world to be from. So that's where I live, um, about an hour away from the City, Iowa. And I am – I just started student teaching. I'm about a year away from finishing my elementary education degree. And um, I'm thinking about moving to L.A. and being a teacher um, because I have family in California. And so I was wondering if there's room if or if you know of any jobs in filmmaking, like, for educators, like as far as, like, educational programming – or um or children's programming or or documentary work, um I think I see these two things being really complementary to each other, and I think my goal is to make a career using both sets of passions, filmmaking and documentary work and so I love documentary work and I love um, I love educating people and so I'm just wondering if you're aware of any career paths that include both of those passions. Um, thank you guys so much. Uh, I am look forward to listening to um, any feedback or thanks for um, calling in you guys have. So basically
2: thanks. the gist is he wants to combine uh, his passion for education with his passion for filmmaking are there jobs out there that do that the answer is yes and also Oren and I are not the experts on this
1: job market well we're not but I do love the question because a lot of times I think about like
2: Oh, not being an expert doesn't mean we're not going to answer.
1: Li- <laughs> right, our right, listeners right. know that, that at this point. Right. But I guess a lot of times I think about, like, if I would have stayed an engineer, would I still have made shorts for all the engineering conferences, you know? Or, like, vi- explainer mm. videos for our software. Like, like video is, like, a part of the vernacular of how you show people things, right? So, like, educational videos is, like, a a giant, one of the biggest types of videos you know in the world um but I thought a good example uh dear listener if you haven't listened to the episode of with Augustine frizell uh, it's a good one because she actually started I mean she just shot a pilot for HBO she had a movie at South by Southwest she's like an acclaimed filmmaker but she started uh just making videos with her daughter for school projects right um and I think she started as a parent but she got really into it with her daughter and they were making like really involved short films and um I have a friend Anna that she's involved with um 826 LA yeah so 826
2: is uh the educational organization that yeah Dave Eggers started uh they've got one in LA and they've got one in um San Francisco and I can't remember where else but they do a thing where like they'll have like a quirky storefront so that it kind of both attracts attention and also um lets them be in commercially zoned areas, which have a lot of foot traffic. And so it's like a little more convenient for people. Um, but then the back is all about uh, ed- peer education, basically. So like tutoring and mentoring, right?
1: Right. So I know Anna was part of something where she had to like build a robot that like answered, it was like question bot and you can ask it questions and they do all sorts of like real interesting uh, like events that are kind of educate or video related or entertainment related in various ways. Um, so yeah, I, I think there is like a lot of opportunity. I mean, there's obviously the super obvious thing, which is like, you could teach, you know, film sure. class in a high school or whatever, or radio or, TV or even whatever. like PBS
2: or like, there's a few, there's a few obvious like edutainment sort of, um, brands out there. I was going to suggest actually my very first job out of college was working for a nonprofit. And I was filming, it, was mo- it wasn't even like pure documentary or anything like that. It was more like um, facilitating video footage to people off-site. So not filmmaking at all, but put me in the world of nonprofits. And there's certainly a need there for. in the same way that there is in technology, where it's like you need to uh, communicate ideas and promote new projects and things like that. Through video, so that people just can kind of be aware of things. So I, there could be a niche there, and I think obviously, like the hotbeds of nonprofits or universities, typically.
1: Did you hear about that average guy that was hanging out with Jesus, Moses, and Muhammad? No, he was a nonprofit. Um, just made that up. And low, they're just flowing tonight. I just, I have a friend that works at this company, Goldieblox. I was just telling you about him. Oh, right, yeah. Basically, they're it's a combination of educators and filmmakers making videos for about STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math for young women. Um, And so, yes, there's definitely places for it. I I do think it's not like you go to Craigslist and you find, you know, a job listing. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's 50% making your own job and 50% starting to be involved in these like nonprofits in these organizations that educate young people. And then maybe even suggesting that you involve filmmaking, sure. in documentary filmmaking, all that stuff. Um, I'd point you towards the Marine Barucha episode as well,
2: right? Talk about a person who was in an organization and then created an opportunity for herself to use her passion for filmmaking to create value in the company.
1: We're in a strong support, as you all know, uh, of moving to LA and, we do have plenty of schools, and I, assuming we have plenty of need for good teachers, and I believe the teachers' union in LA just got some won some battle with the city or the county um, or some board of supervisors of some sort, and so it's probably not the worst time to be a teacher here. So um, yeah. you should come here.
2: And I would say also that the nice thing about being interested in both education and filmmaking. And being a teacher means that you are at least plugged into half of the systems and people and community that you need to be plugged into, right?
1: Yeah. And also if you, it depends on what part of LA you live in, but most parts of LA, I mean, there's no better networking than going to like an elementary school and meeting all the parents uh, of the kids. Uh, I think I've spoken about it before, but in my daughter's preschool, Every, all the parents work in show business and it's like it's cool you know i've, I've recommended people they've recommended me it's at the very least we might get some podcast guests out of it
2: <laughs> can't wait awesome well thanks so much for calling in
1: okay next question
2: yeah daniel garcia so daniel garcia writes uh really enjoyed the just shoot a podcast and wanted to say hi i'm a freelance director in new york uh with some moderate success i.e not living hand to mouth While I know and work with other directors and artists from time to time, it's mostly an isolated job in that you do your thing with no reference to how someone else might approach it. Just Shoot inspired me to reach out to other local directors, storytellers, and artists, and now we have an informal roundtable every couple weeks. Uh, There's been a mass migration to L.A. as of recently, so the number is dwindling, LOL. So Daniel uh, reached out and was just like, hey, thanks so much, and I thought, oh, what a great email. I asked him if I could read it on the air because the thing I like so much about it is that Daniel took the initiative to build his own community of filmmakers outside LA right so obviously New York is a, another major market so it's like there are plenty of people out there but um, the point is, is just because you may not live in Los Angeles doesn't mean you, that you can't connect with other filmmakers and build community and I think that Oren and I have found a lot of happiness and success thanks to the community that Just Shoot has created.
1: I like to picture Daniel getting together with his filmmaker friends and then one of them pulling out their iPhone and just playing an episode of Just Shoot It and like just listening. And if somebody says anything, yeah, someone's like, shh, shh, after the podcast, after the pod.
2: I was thinking about
1: how I'm sure we've
2: made a ton of mistakes that we don't know that we are wrong about. You know, we're just shooting out advice left (laughs) and right, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, but we... And I, I feel
2: like people. I feel like I, our listeners are like in their cars and they're like, "Nope, that's not how it is." Right? That's well, not, in my experience, you're wrong.
1: I feel like we temper it by and we disagreeing. don't get those emails enough. We don't. Yeah, get those we emails disagree enough. with each other a lot, which to me is just our way of saying like we literally, yeah, yeah, nobody knows. No, have have the same number of answers as you do, but we just record them <laughs> into GarageBand. If anyone wants to have a just shoot it listening party? Let me know.
2: Or or just a just shoot it meetup or a director's meetup. We don't have to be involved. And do you want us to uh publicize it? Let us know. Like I'm happy to like retweet things or like shout people out, let people know, like, hey, there's a New York directors meetup, Daniel told us about it, or, or any other market,
1: any other place. Yeah. Australia, Germany are big hot spots. The UK too. I always thought it was pronounced Uck. Um, Okay, cool. So Jesse Mendelson writes, Hey Matt and love the show. I'm a filmmaker in LA who's looking to make a short to further my career. Shocking, I know. I've written something I'm really proud of and have gotten positive response and negative feedback and worked for years to improve it. People have really embraced the newer drafts and in the meantime I've also just shot it. I made a low budget web series and two sketches with more on the way. The problem is I feel like I've been holding back. Low budgets and single location projects, they don't look crappy or anything but I'm just looking to do something that has an ambitious narrative and strong visuals. How do I know when it's right to not just shoot it and take your time saving slash raising money? And how do I push myself creatively on a level of pure ambition? Thanks, Jesse Mendelsohn. Um, Okay, so Jesse is asking how to figure out when to just shoot it versus when to put a lot of thought and make sure what you're shooting is actually good. Yeah. And it's... Something I'm sure you and I struggle with all the time.
2: Every microsecond of the day. It is the thing that obsesses us.
1: Yeah, it's like perfectionism, right? Like, do you want to make something perfect? Or do you want to make something? (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
2: totally. Well, you know, and it also, not to overcomplicate things, but, you know, thinking about the short that I just recently did, a gray one, it originally started out as a exercise in just shooting it, just reminding myself that I could, shoot something in a day call in a few favors shoot 10 pages bada bing bada boom and then the plan was to just go ahead and release it online relatively soon thereafter and look you know you start deciding to put a little bit of money in and then you know you bring on some friends and you realize oh you should add a little bit more because it would make yeah, it a we should better. probably shoot
1: on alexa and i mean we probably should have like a hair and makeup person and- yeah yeah exactly
2: and then you kind of snowballs and then all of a sudden you know you put your heart and your soul into something and a couple grand, and like no matter how well you're doing, that's still real money, right? And then you're like, well, maybe I should submit it to South by, maybe I should give it its best shot, and then all of a sudden, you know, you finish this movie that you're proud of, but isn't um online yet. no one can see it. I'm just talking about myself, right, right. obviously, but the flip side is like you know when Carrie was talking to us about shorts. You just have to be really hard on yourself. It needs to be awesome in order for it to be meaningful to a person like her. And Carrie uh, is a development executive at U.S. Uh, at AMC.
1: So there's a balance, right? Yeah. But there's two things you get out of making a short. One is you get potentially a good short. Mm-hmm. But two is you get the exercise of making that short. And a lot of times, again, sorry, going back to Augustine Frizzell, she made a feature film that she... That was not good
2: yeah and had the courage to trash it to start over again
1: but she showed it to some people and they're like look this is not was not executed great but there's like some magic here like let's capture that and rebuild it somewhere else and you see that all the time like you know you see i can't think of a great example but like desperado you know like robert rodriguez's first film had a lot of problems but there's there was something in it that people responded to, and that's and he kind of ended up almost like remaking that movie you know for his next film with like a bigger budget and I think it it did well <laughs> I don't think it was as well received <laughs> as his indie film, which is why this isn't a great example, but I think there's there's value in making something that's not perfect but has something that people are like, oh mm-hmm. Matt's good at this or this is the type of thing that matt' like likes to talk about or write or this performance is nice or this shot is nice. And so, just because everything doesn't add up to win the South by Southwest Jury Award or something, it doesn't mean that it wasn't valuable that you made it. Without a doubt. If you don't finish stuff, there is a question of whether it was worth making because you're not getting any feedback. You know, just because you hate it, it, it's not enough for you to understand, like, what is working and what's not working, you know? I don't think Jesse's not finishing things. I think his question is really, like, when do you go all in on an idea? Oh, right. So right. I think the answer is kind of, I guess, my opinion is you do make like a bunch of shorts, you know, and some are great and some are not great. And some is just you on your iPhone and others. It's like a 15 person crew and an Alexa. And sure, sure, sure. I'm going to pump the brakes, Oren. Yes. Right. Because I agree
2: completely. But what Jesse is asking is, when? Do, how do you know which one should be the iPhone? And which one should be the 15 person crew? That's what he's getting at,
1: yeah. Yeah, I guess that there's that, but it's also like how many how much practice do you need before you put it all on the line, right? Well, yeah, and may, I maybe I'm putting words in his mouth in terms of all on the line.
2: I, I don't, he's not like, hey, I'm thinking of mortgaging my house.
1: He's like, right, but he's when, saying, I want to have an ambitious narrative and strong visuals, which to me means uh, I want to. Techno crane, you know, or something like I'm not just going to like shoot it handheld in my house. Mm-hmm. I want to get well, a good me... location. I want to get a good cast. I want to get something extra.
2: I would say this I think that there is a happy medium that plenty of awesome shorts have been made in where you do awesome, strong visuals and have great performances. And they're maybe not from your super famous friend who's probably only going to do one short for you. And they're probably not on a techno crane but you can still make something really kick-ass and really thoughtful because you spend time on it. To me, that is the thing that you really need to to dial in is like write the script and then really think through how to tell the story with the camera. But like a lot of awesome, awesome, some of your very favorite movies of all time
1: are just
2: told through camera placement and cuts.
1: Right. But I guess there's this theory. Like have you read blink? Do you know that idea behind that? Right. It's, The idea behind that is that if you have a year to prepare for something or a day to prepare for something, it doesn't necessarily mean that the year is going to be like 365 times better than the day. At the end of the day, when you're like doing what you are doing, according to Blink, right, what really counts is how much experience you have, how much has turned from like intellectual thinking to instinctual thinking, right, like the 10,000 hours idea and so to me that's it's more about it's less about prep time like if you have three months to prepare for your short it doesn't mean it's going to be any better than the short that you just like thought of this morning
2: yeah i mean it isn't it isn't though there's a happy medium somewhere is what i'm saying like there's a difference between rushing and lucking into some inspiration in doing the work doing a table read and fixing it hearing it out loud with actors running rehearsals, tweaking things, constantly refining things, doing the work, getting your DP in there and watching a rehearsal and talking through shots together, running, blocking rehearsals, all of that stuff, that's not procrastination and that's not taking your time and that's not sitting, you know, staring out a window for 365 days.
1: Right. But you're talking about production. Or, right?
2: or pre-production. Uh, rehearsal. You know, like doing I'm – I'm talking about doing the work, right? Like if you've got one day worth of shooting that you can afford – you can still invest a lot of time and effort and thoughtfulness That it is going to pay off. That would that if you just showed up on the day and like made it work, you didn't do a light study, you don't know where the light's going to be, you don't know how long things are going to be, you don't know if your actors are off book or not, you don't know, you haven't explored things yet. If you haven't done all of that stuff, then that day isn't going to be as good. You know, a lesson I really learned from my wife Chrissy when she was shooting her short because she was both in front of and behind the camera it was really fascinating because she didn't have a choice she couldn't wing it it was also a period piece right and so the thing of like well i'll just have the actors show up and they'll bring some choices and i'll pick my favorite shirt and then we'll steam it and throw it on them and we'll go shoot none of that stuff was really on the table she had to make literally every single decision in advance and as a result the short was much stronger than it would have been if she just kind of like Threw it together last year. Threw it night. together, you know? And so, I, th- I and a lot of that work, frankly, is free. Yeah. You know, a lot of that, you do not need to, you have to commit the energy, but you do not have to commit cold, hard cash. Right. And so you could make your iPhone short a hell of a lot better doing that work as well.
1: It's not necessarily about money.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so just maybe interrogating your process a little bit when it's your passion project, thinking about the ways in which you can get better, with the circumstances that you're in, that's, that's always going to be
1: worthwhile. Yeah. And I'll add, I guess there's just two more thoughts I had. One is that it depends on the idea. You know, is this an idea that like every time you pitch it to someone, they're like, oh damn, that is like a good idea. Or is an idea where when every time you pitch it to someone, they're like, oh yeah, that kind of reminds me of this thing. And like, it feels familiar. It's not fresh or it's not original or people aren't really excited by it. You know, like those are the things where you're like, I have an idea to do this fun action scene and then you just shoot it and it's cool and you've exercised your action scene muscles. But if you have an idea that you think is like, this could win Sundance, you know, or that you're just getting a lot of good feedback on it when you tell it to people, then maybe that is an indication that that's the one you should invest a little more time or money into. Yeah. I mean, it's
2: tricky too, because if you keep waiting for the idea to strike you that, is going to win you Sundance, then maybe it never comes. Yeah.
1: And it doesn't have to win Sundance, but it has to be something that is exciting you and the people around you beyond a genre. You know, it's not like, oh, let's make a cool horror short. Uh, you know, if you have an idea that is really revolutionary or fresh or original. And I think that kind of brings me to my second thing that I think about when I'm making new things is like, have I done this before? Like, what am I going to get out of this? What's the worst case scenario? Like, oh, at least I'll do all these drone shots that I've never done before, or I'll get to work with this actor that I've never worked before, or try to figure out what the new thing is you're getting. Because I kind of get the feeling that Jesse is like, well, I've already done this. I made, you know, these sketches and I made this low budget Mm -hmm. web series and I made this thing and I've gotten that experience and I don't feel like I need to do that again. So maybe your thing is like, I want to make, a sh- you know a short film that looks like you know a Ridley Scott movie mm-hmm. and and then that obviously is going to take some more money and planning to accomplish so, uh, or, or a magic bullet look <laughs> or a magic bullet look right but ideally that's not the first thing you're making because you hear all these stories about these like SC film school students that raise like 150 grand to shoot their first short film and it's like trash because it's their first short film well it's not their f- first their third short film. <laughs> it's, it's probably literally like their fourth or fifth, but yeah, still. Um, but yeah, but it's like, get, get the bad ones out, you know? And yeah, it sounds like maybe. Yeah. Sprint to some that. mistakes. Yeah. And find, find the stuff that you want to do better and find the stuff that worked for you. So anyway, Jesse, there's no answer to your question, <laughs> um, but don't let it
2: paralyze you. Just keep moving. Keep doing the work.
1: Yeah. And we've said this a million times but the reason that, I do this podcast is because I felt paralyzed I felt like I was oh I want to make this perfect short film but it's like a relationship story and I've seen it before it's an action thing and I don't, don't quite have the resources to make it as good as like a big Hollywood action thing so Matt and I were talking and it was like what is something I can make every week without worrying about it and put it out into the world and so I think as long as you're making something and putting it out into the world whether you've spent A dollar on it or a million dollars whether you spent a second thinking about it or a year like just keep making stuff because it's I I think it's like our heartbeat as filmmakers is to make things regardless of how good they are honestly well regardless is maybe
2: no we always
1: want them to be good you know one is like I think this will kind of suck but I'm gonna go shoot it anyway sure unless they're getting paid for it (laughs) (laughs) a little dark
2: um, all right. Next up, we've got Bryce. Bryce dropped us a voicemail.
0: Hello. Uh, my name is Bryce, and my Twitter handle is at the Skafather. Um, I guess so. I, after listening to your podcast for a few years, I've been trying to make my way in filmmaking out side of LA and after a couple of years trying to do it on my own I ended up working in the adult film industry as a writer and an editor mainly working in post production for a uh, a major adult film company and I wanted to know what your opinion was on the viability of moving towards a full-time career in video production from my experience in the adult film industry. Any advice you have, I appreciate.
2: So Bryce, so much. basically Bryce uh found himself uh working in the adult film industry and wants to know uh if how people feel about that and what skills transfer basically. Well, let me let me ask you this cuz Oren, you've crewed around. Did yeah. you ever um find yourself on a pornographic film?
1: Uh Well, neither confirm nor deny that. (laughs) Well, I'll say this. I haven't, but I think it
2: is common for young people, especially like camera and lighting side, to get recruited and they're like, you know, working this job or whatever. And
1: then they're like, oh boy, the dialogue is so bad in this. And then someone gets naked and they're like, oh. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've definitely actually, I've been on a short film set where I did not realize there was going to be nudity. It was like a very low budget thing, and I was like, I did think I was like, this actress is not very good. I wonder why yeah, he what's cast the her. Deal? Yeah, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay, because she is willing to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, And I was very uncomfortable <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, you you got to prepare people for that, you know. Yeah, you definitely do. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't por- It wasn't a porn thing, but it was just like I don't know. They're making out and not wearing
2: uh, shirts yeah you should tell people about that I have done some like things where we need like modesty and stuff like that you know it's kind of like stunts it's you know it's weird anyway um, back to Bryce's question (sighs) I don't I know you hear all of those stories of back in the day about um, people getting their start like I learned how to expose film in porn and stuff like that I don't think that that those stories really hold water anymore you know, I think back in the day, getting practical experience was a lot harder to come by because there were, you couldn't buy cameras and film stock was so expensive and all that stuff. So, like, you could kind of learn how to do your job on a practical craft level on adult films in a way that, you 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 know, like, there's YouTube tutorials and, like, you've got an iPhone in your pocket. So, like, there's less uh, reason to have to learn that way now, I guess is what I'm getting at. And so, to me... Certainly there are skills that transfer. I don't know that I would put it on a resume or that. I don't think the worlds intersect very much. Yeah.
1: I mean, look, you know how to use the camera. You know how to edit. You understand Avid or Premiere or whatever. Like, if you're coming in from that side, I I really don't think it matters. Like, if you have the skills, you, you know, when you show someone a reel or a sample, you can show them whatever you want. So maybe you've done, like, 100 adult films, but you did two shorts with a friend, you can Show those, you know. You can show the scene right before. Maybe there are a couple great shots or like great dialogue scenes from one of these adult films, and you can edit them out. But I want to I want to stop you there because your point is the only work
2: that counts when you're going into mainstream work is the stuff that isn't adult. So either you you said oh either the, the shorts that you saw shot on the side. Or the parts that weren't explicitly adult
1: no but as training as an experienced person you can say like yeah i've been editing for t- six years professionally you know there's yeah, no that's totally i've true. been yeah. gaffing i've been writing i've been doing whatever you know if, as a writer obviously you show writing samples and, and that is just up to you to make on your own but like i guess a, a similar though maybe potentially slightly less taboo way into filmmaking is like through the wedding videography um right And I I think there's, like, some big YouTubers that started out filming, like, weddings, and then they filmed, like, skaters, and then they filmed parkour people, and then they added a little Mm -hmm. story, and then a video game company paid them to make a cool parkour narrative thing. And, like, um, there's this guy, Devin Supertramp. Do you know him? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think he kind of started in the videography world. And there's a lot of people now on YouTube that are, like, kind of big, successful filmmakers that started in an adjacent video-related, you know, Yeah, I mean, videography
2: is great in terms of just, like, paying the bills and, like...
1: And playing with cool equipment. Cool equipment, too, yeah. So it's an apt comparison, for sure. I think that... It's not much in the way of storytelling, but it is a lot in the... It shows you that you know technically what you're doing. Now you have to prove that you can also, like, tell stories. Let me ask you
2: this, Oren. How often are you looking at resumes when you're deciding to hire someone you're going to crew up with a a b cam operator um or an editor i'll tell you i'll
1: give you an example this so this job i'm doing i'm shooting next week i don't the the usual costume designer i work with was not available so i had uh, names rec you know recommendations from a few other people and it's kind of the same for all of them i go to their website if they don't have a website it's a pretty big strike against them to be honest um but they better then they better be on imdb and hopefully i have an idea of at least what company made something you know if
2: they've got a killer imdb
1: oh yeah but let's say they do commercials that aren't really on imdb or let's say they do something else um it doesn't help but so a website i go to their website i you know there'll be usually videos and i'll just like quickly glance at them I look at who they've worked with. I look at, you know, costume designer. I look at the wardrobe that people wear and see if there's anything that, like, especially turns me off or that I really like. And then I kind of decide based on that. So it's not really a resume, but it's looking at the videos they've done. And that's exactly the way I do it as well, right?
2: But the two things I'm hearing are, one, previous work, but more importantly is the referral. And so the tricky thing about working in adjacent industries whether that's adult films or videography or other things that we haven't thought of yet is that your network if they're if the networks don't cross over then it's really hard to get those referrals in the first place so i would say that bryce i would encourage you to continue making a living you know what i mean do what you got to do skill up learn what you can Um, but don't lose sight of that side hustle of banding together with your friends. Maybe borrow some equipment or even like, you know, a a premiere login or whatever you can. that, That side hustle, whether it's videography or adult films or, um, you know, local news, there's all sorts of jobs that are like very close to what you want to be doing that aren't exactly the same, but that have a lot of transferable skills. But, uh, it's the side hustle stuff that I think is going to ultimately pay off in terms of community and in terms of work that you can show elsewhere.
1: And the one other example I just want to throw out there, it's not as true now, but it's still mostly true, which is when I made my first movie, I signed with, you know, anonymous content, good management company, just based off that one movie. Uh, they ended up like we ended up parting because they didn't, couldn't figure out what to do with me. But, and now I'm back with them. So it's like, it's kind of, this is a, like when I was much younger and newer in the industry is is the point of me saying that. Um, and I had had at that point, like 80 million views on my YouTube channel or something. And on all these different videos. And I told my managers, I'm like, guys, this is how you pitch me. Yes, I made this one movie, but look at me. I got like a million views here. I got 5 million views here. I got 10 million views here. I got this. I worked with this friend. I know this YouTuber. And they literally, their eyes just like glazed over and they're like, yeah, that it like all these YouTube views mean absolutely nothing for us. Like you have your feature and I wanted to, you know, my first feature is like a sports family film and I wanted to do like a thriller next. And they're like, no one is going to hire you to do a thriller. And I was like, but I've made all these YouTube videos with like thriller elements. Um, And they're like, yeah, but it's, those are YouTube videos. (laughs) So even though I considered myself like successful in this kind of sub industry mm-hmm. of the film industry it to my like traditional Hollywood people, it meant absolutely nothing. And it's still today you can be a giant, giant YouTuber and you know, still not really, you know, unless you're like in the top 0.1%, it, it still doesn't count for that much. I think when you're going for like traditional Hollywood work, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, the real still has to be the thing. So like, you know, you could be mid tier YouTuber and not have huge views on your stuff, but it all looks awesome, you know, like in the same vein as a Devon super tramp or like Scott DW or someone like that. But if the visuals are really awesome and they're looking for someone who can do lifestyle, the same thing applies. So like you can get the job without views, I guess is what I'm saying as
1: well. Right. Right. <laughs> but I, I guess what I'm saying is like, no one really cares about the work you did before. If it's not, like like if you want to be a director pretty much Or kind of yeah, want some sure. above the line position No one is going to care about your previous work If it's not the same as what you are trying to get now
2: No one's going to like do deep googling And be like wait a minute This guy's in the adult film industry You don't get to make movies anymore You know like that's not true If that were true
1: Yeah but I think Bryce is saying Can I say like look I've directed these 50 movies <laughs> And give me a job And the answer is no the answer's right. no, for sure. Yeah.
2: Do you think that he could say, "Well, I've edited these 50 movies."
1: Yeah, I think
2: so. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, because here's the problem is the follow-up question. I'm like, "Oh, cool. Send me your stuff." If right. you've got a couple really dope, really dope, like high-end spots that you've edited, then maybe you can fly under the radar. But like, if they're like, you know, uh, normally we like to, you've got two, and you're like, we like to send three. And you don't have it—that's a problem.
1: Recently, I've been thinking, you know, a lot about trailers and trailer editing, and kind of realizing, like, if you have—if you've never edited trailers before, and now someone's giving you a job to edit a trailer, but you've edited an indie film that played at Sundance, and you've edited a half—you know—a half-hour sitcom, it still doesn't mean you're going to be like a good trailer editor, because <laughs> like, oh, it's such a different—the skills are so yeah. different, and so that's why I'm thinking like an adult film. I just can't think. Of something that would just make you like so perfect to edit this next, you know, th- like it's really hard to sell, <laughs> to sell the yeah. skills, those yeah. editing skills, um, unless it's super stylized or super something like a time travel adult. film. <laughs> I, I can't yeah. even make I up an the, example. The
2: taboo is really tricky, but look, I think the advice still stands of like collect your paycheck and hustle. It's not so different from other jobs that we would rather not have, basically. Uh, Yeah, I was super excited because, you know, I feel like this is a pretty common question for people, and we hadn't ever talked about it on the show. So thanks, Bryce.
1: Yeah. And I I think even you and I go through things like this where we're like, hey, we're looking for someone that's directed a high school comedy. And you're like, well, I did. It's a little old. It doesn't look that great. Should I submit it? Oh, no doubt. your reps yep. are like, nah, don't send that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so like, you're, yeah, like bleh. all your past experience is like not as yeah. valuable as you wish it was. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Bryce. Uh, Yeah. I hope we've uh, successfully not answered yet another listener <laughs> question. <laughs> Next question is from Oscar Vaca. Oscar says, hey, Matt and Warren, love the show. It's been really inspiring to hear stories from you guys and your guests. Currently, I'm working as a full-time PA and plan on hopefully climbing up the ladder to become a first AD I'm a long time listener of the podcast and don't recall you guys talking about the first AD slash director relationship on a project. Do you get to hire or pick who you want? What qualities do you think makes a good first AD and how do you explain your vision to them? How creatively do they get involved in your projects? Uh, And one of the reasons that I don't know if I'm picking the right career path is that I feel it isn't as creatively rewarding as directing. I thought you guys might have some helpful insight on these questions. Thanks for the great show. Thanks Oscar.
2: What a great question. I feel like the answers to me are very straightforward. Or what do you look for in an AD?
1: I look for someone is very highly recommended, number one, by far. Number two, that has read the script, knows what's going on, is good with timing. And you know, I think I've said this on the show before, but there's the, to me, what makes clearly a bad AD is the AD that says to you, hey, you're behind, you're 30 minutes behind, you got to cut something. That's a bad AD or the bad, the other version of a bad AD is just someone you can't find when you're on set. That's very, very frustrating. <laughs> oh, Happened to me kind of recently. Um, the great version of an AD is like, hey, look, I know we have three more shots. We're 30 minutes behind, but we can catch up. if We combine these two shots. Do you think you what can... What if we do this? Yeah. yeah. The, creative, the creative solution AD. But by the way, they're also, at the same time that they're helping you with that, they need to be juggling the fact that we just lost our permit for tomorrow to shoot on the street, and now... Right we can't afford the process trailer and all these like problems that that they're fixing in the background while you don't even realize there are any problems. And that is, I've actually never really worked with an AD that has been telling me about all the other problems, which is good, but a a good AD will field those without muddying your brain with them. Yeah. Sometimes I think
2: they'll, they'll do the thing of like, Hey, I'm sorry. I have to step away real fast. Yeah. Are you okay? And you're like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. The
1: second AD will take over the site. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I've been really fortunate. I feel like the last couple times I've had a proper AD, there are people that I've worked with for years, and I just like – because a lot of the jobs I've been doing recently, the crews are so small that, like, a producer will AD or something, which, um, you know, I don't like. Um, And it was like, oh, man, the ones that I work with regularly, it's such a treat to work with them, and they're just getting
1: better all the time, basically. Right. Have you ever done a small job and the producer says to you, hey, Matt, so do you think we need an AD on this one? Has that ever happened to you?
2: It did just recently. And I was like, you know what? It's fine. I think we're okay
1: on this one. I, I, I'll i make the joke like, I don't need someone to tell me that I'm running behind. I know. It's funny because I had the same experience recently on that Keyblur job. And then the day before I was like, can we get an AD, please? <laughs> I, there's no way we're going to make our day.
2: Yeah, it's just like... Uh, Every time I say no, I'm like, "Why would I ever say no? Why would I do that?" Yeah,
1: because you're fighting for your Steadicam or your Alexa yeah, or whatever, right, exactly. and you're like trying to be. Every good idea, at least on the com- in the commercial world, will take your storyboards. They'll put them on a schedule. They'll say, "From one to one fifteen, we're shooting this storyboard frame. From one fifteen to one thirty, we're turning the camera around. From one thirty to one forty five, we're shooting this thing. Um, and during that time, this actor is going to be changing into this wardrobe. So they're like." putting the puzzle pieces together in a really smart way. Um, But they're also like on set. You're like, ah, that string isn't long enough. Like, uh, uh, like, can you try it one more time to pull the door with the string? So we don't see your hand in the frame. And the AD will be saying like, Hey, art department, can we get a longer string? Like that is like, and when you don't have that person there and you're like art, art, this is on art. (laughs) Like, and then you start getting your own string, you know, it's like, the AD is like also there to protect you from yourself <laughs> when you Without as a, a director doubt. are trying to like do all these things because you don't know I I don't know about you but do you carry a walkie? No. I no, hate I, walkies. I, I hate I hate walkies. So the AD is also the person that is like literally your communication to every department that's not standing right next to you.
2: Right, but your point about anticipating is is part of it as well. Like if they're in tune they can see what we need before we need it. So I was going to say the two things that I think about when I want an ID, because I'm pretty schedule oriented, you know, like I know whether I'm behind or uh, how to like make up time, all of that stuff. Like I'm, I'm relatively in tune with that. And I feel like over the years, I've gotten frankly a little bit worse about it because I've been coddled by great IDs or like you kind of think oh, I can catch up a little bit faster than I realized I could. The two things I want, I want to make sure that their onset demeanor is great, right? I want to make sure that, like, they're not a yeller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they cannot be mean. It can't be mean. Command a crew, for sure. You need to raise your voice. You need to project. Totally 100% okay. That, that is the job. But you are not yelling at people.
1: Well, what what's your opinion on this? I've gotten into some hot water with it, but, like, what's your opinion on saying like okay we're just waiting on sound okay we're just waiting on the camera to get into position okay we're just getting waiting on art to fix this last thing i will say standing by
2: i hate especially waiting on sound because uh camera guys love to make that joke like love it because like you know they there's a bunch of them so it's easy to kind of gang up on the one or two sound (laughs) people and also most of the time we're waiting on them so like any time there's an opportunity for them to be like waiting on sound. It's like, I don't know why it is the least funniest joke I can think of. It makes me, I'm getting mad thinking about it. I'm also like, I love all of my
1: sound people. I didn't know that that's a joke. I mean, to me, like I need to, before I start any shoot is I need to tell the crew like, Hey, just so you know, I might say we're waiting on makeup. I might say we're waiting on this because to me, the most frustrating thing is it's like, why aren't we shooting? What are we waiting on? Like I don't, yeah, yeah, and I don't want to be like calling the ad, like, hey, Liz, why are we not shooting? Like, what's, <laughs> what are we waiting on? Who are we waiting on? And so I like everyone to know, like, hey, as soon as the sound person has replaced the batteries in this transmitter and put it back on the actor, we are going. Like, don't go to the bathroom. Don't go. This, like, look, we are very close. So, don't go away. Um, and so I do like saying, like, it's it's not a blame thing at all. It's not like, oh, we're waiting on. And I, right. but I've had people say like, because I'd be like, okay, we're just waiting on makeup. As soon as they're done, we're gonna go. And they're like, oh, the lighting got an hour, and you're giving me four minutes. I'm like, yeah, you can take as long as you want. I just, yeah, yeah, you I'm can just have letting 10 people minutes. know that as soon as you're done, we should go. Yeah. So
2: I, I'll say standing by. You know, there's sometimes, some, yeah, I I get your point, and I think that there's a lot of just. um people are sensitive sometimes and it's it's about just the tone of the set in general um you know it's funny you made a joke of like like oh uh you know Liz is doing this or that you bring up Liz uh, uh Miles and AD that we both love dearly and the other thing the third thing that I was going to say is um someone you can trust right like it's going to be a hard day I know that they're going to do a lot of work you know it's 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 a complicated thing. There's going to be things that go right. There's going to be things that go wrong. I know I can just trust intrinsically in AD that like w- with history and, and time with that person, like we're doing the best that we can. If it didn't happen, it's because it was impossible. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, because, because you pulled off the impossible with them a couple of times. And the other thing, the, my second thing is like, I want a, cause I'm not super worried about scheduling because we've gone over it a bunch and I'm, I'm pretty efficient. I don't go for one more if I've already got it. As soon as I say cut and moving on, I wanna walk from wherever we were to the next spot and I want everything ready to go. Like, I don't wanna be like, oh, okay, well, we're gonna go into blocking, but pretend that you've got the car keys, you know, we'll get them in a second. It's not a big deal, but like, I want everything to be ready to move directly into blocking. And if you can get in that rhythm, then your day's gonna go great. Yeah, any good ad will
1: hopefully be thinking that, and and it's part of your job to communicate to them. Hey, by the way, I think we should shoot this part next instead of this, like, or else you know, like, because you can screw them over quite easily. Oh, easily. by just deciding yeah, yeah. to do something different that they weren't prepared for. Um, yeah, yeah, but I will say one other thing I really like in an ad, which I suspect many directors don't, is I like an ad that has an opinion on the creative work, like. When, especially when you're working with like clients or you have like two video villages, right? So that's a common thing on commercials, you have like the director's monitor. You're usually closer to the set, closer to the actors, closer to the DP. You're with the script supervisor and the AD, and you have your monitor. And the client and all the people, the agency people and all those people, they're like a lot of times in a different room with their own monitors, and there's a producer with them that is walking the AD giving notes. So the idea is that they're not bugging you kind of while you're working the whole time. Which I, I think we probably talked about on the show. I hate.
2: I will go over to Client Village all the time. I'll, I'll poke my head in and be like, hey, I think we got it. Or I'll, tell, I'll have them walkie ahead and be like, hey, watch it. This is the take. If you don't like this one, let me know. Cementing that personal relationship with them, making sure they're feeling good, and also like making sure they mean the note and that it's not getting like garbled or that they don't really want it. Like If I need to move on, and I stick my head in the van and I'm like, hey, guys, I think we got it. What does everyone think? And they're like, eh, Well, you know, it's fine is one thing that that'll happen sometimes. Or they'll be like, you didn't get it. And then I know we've got to get it again. You know,
1: half the time I'm like, they're like, can you just do it again? Because she said that line at the end that she added that thing and we don't need it. And I'm always like, OK, we could just cut before she says that line. <laughs> like, I feel like the client is like always ignoring the fact that you can edit What you just shot—they want the take to be perfect from head to because they're not filmmakers,
2: and so sometimes just being the adding that personal touch lets you kind of
1: alleviate some of those anxieties. But so that's kind of about you and your creative relationship with the client. But the opposite of side of that that coin is that you're at the monitor without anyone creative. The DP is like worried about the look. The actor's worrying about their performance and pleasing you, and the ad is worried about the schedule, and so the script supervisor is worried about the words and continuity and all these other things. So there's no one else really telling you like, yeah, that was really funny, you know, or that was, that looked awesome. And part of like the fun of filmmaking is that like camaraderie of like, Oh damn, you know, Stanley Kubrick called and he wants his shot back, like all that dumb stuff. Right. Um, so I like an AD that's like, Oh, that was good. (laughs) That was funny. Like, that's just like being positive or like, are you okay? Are you okay with the fact that like, he asked her a question and she didn't even acknowledge it. Like just like little things to know that they care. There's someone else on the crew that is understands filmmaking that cares about the story. I I like, and so my question for you is, do you care if you are working with an AD that also wants to direct or is also a director? Is that a good thing, a bad thing or neither?
2: You know, I've got, um, a, I've got an AD that I work with, Pretty, I basically only work with three ADs. Um, and one of them, two of them are career ADs, and one of them ADs all the time, um, and is great, but uh, is a filmmaker himself. And I think that it, the the real issue is basically like, I want to hear pitches till the cows come home. When I'm like, nah, I don't think so, are they like, okay. And then, and don't take it personally, and know that I'm listening to them. You know what I mean. So I have that relationship with that ad, and so it doesn't bother me at all. And like we talk about what he's working on at lunch. You don't feel judged while you're shooting, or everyone is judging you. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like (laughs) that that can happen as well, right? It doesn't take an ad to to judge you. Yeah. You know, like you say pan instead of tilt in the moment and like your B cam operator rolls his eyes and like whispers into his walkie. yeah, oh,
1: that is a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> um, yeah.
2: Or all sorts of other stuff. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So ADs. Yeah. They can be creative. They can be awesome. The path from first AD to director is quite difficult. I think at the top levels, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. we had a, you know, Ross Novi first AD on every single TV show that you absolutely love. Was on our podcast, and it's just you know, and he would love to direct all those shows, and it's just not the easiest thing to do. I mean, the hours are also quite
2: brutal, you know, and so you find yourself with less time to write that dream screenplay.
1: I thought Oscar asked one other really interesting question, which is like, how do you explain your vision to the ad? What's your answer to that? Poorly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the ad really is like they kind of like extract the vision out of you like so if you do a tech scout which you should do usually the ad will take you and they'll be like okay so where are we starting where do you how do you picture the scene tell us what you're seeing in your head and you're like well i was thinking i don't know we either like start looking at this door or do you think it would be better and you ask the dp you're kind of figuring out the blocking sometimes still at that tech scout right um and you're telling them okay so we're going to shoot here kind of imagine this will be like a real fast moment. So let's have like a lot of room to work. Let's not put the, the monitors around here or whatever. Right. So yeah. So you're slowly kind of like explaining your vision in the form of what shots you're going to get and right. what the blocking is and what the performances are and what mood you want on set to make it all happen.
2: I think I'm going to take that question to heart because I think that, yeah, you figure things out and like sometimes they're just asking questions and kind of getting there. There's, so many times where you know i think about tim Nakashi said like he feels sometimes like he's the only person who knows what he's making on set you know Mm -hmm. and he's he's such a unique filmmaker that like it makes a lot more sense for him you know he's doing things that are weird and out there and you've never seen before and so of course it's like a little hard to articulate sometimes and sometimes i'm just shooting two people making dumb jokes in front of each other and but still sometimes like people don't sometimes people get it and sometimes people don't. And I'm not, I don't worry myself too much about it. I want to make sure that everyone knows how to do their job well, but like I'm kind of tasked with understanding the ultimate broader vision. Um, And that is a myopic way of working, right? That, that excludes collaborators from being able to contribute. And so, you know, I'm constantly trying to think of ways to be better about that. So I don't know, Oscar, what do you like? You work with directors all the time. It hit us back. Uh, cool. Well, thanks so much, everyone. What a great bunch of questions. We've got uh, a handful more that we're going to get to. Um, but if you have questions that you want us to answer on the show, you can either drop us a line at our email, justshootitpod at gmail.com. On Twitter, on Facebook, all of our social medias at Just shoot Pod, Or my very favorite way to answer a question, uh, drop us a line on our voicemail, 2626 shoot one leave us a voicemail we'll play it on the air you heard it here in this episode such a nice way to uh hear a question and also get a better sense of who our listeners are which is pretty great i love audio files <laughs>
1: cool well this episode was edited by jay mccullough the one and only it was produced by madeline rosewatt hooray our webmaster is ewan williams go ewan and the music you're listening to right now is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazard. Thanks, Jazard! In case you don't remember, we love iTunes reviews. It is the way to make our show
2: grow. So if you want to encourage the community, inspire someone else to hear the show, tell a friend about the show. That's always awesome as well. But the other way to do that, to tell the millions of friends in the world that you don't even know yet but will be part of the Just Shoot community before you know it, drop us uh, a review rate five stars five stars does it matter then no it could be one star but I, yeah we want to know what to improve as well um so give us your honest rating please do it and we will read those reviews on air in an upcoming episode
1: until next time i'm at mr madlin and i'm at Smighty pilot and ocaplin and ocaplin on instagram is a better place to follow me thanks everyone and goodbye,
0: goodbye.